Hello and welcome to another episode of Dram Vine, the podcast where we like to talk about everything whiskey. I'm Chelsea. And I'm Pamela. We would love for you to take a sec to subscribe to our show on your podcast app and give us a five-star review if you like what you hear. You can also support us by heading to our website, dramfine.com, and click on the Buy Us A Coffee link. You can also check out our new store and all that good Dramfine merch. That's right. So on today's episode, we are taking a trip out of Scotland and heading to Japan. Um, Right now, Japanese whiskey is more popular than ever, but interest in it has been a relatively new phenomenon and it's pretty much flown out of the radar for many years. So today we're going to take a little look at the history behind Japanese whiskey, find out what we've been missing for far too long. And we're also going to be featuring two Japanese whiskeys today as well, the Kajira 10-Year White Oak Virgin Cast and the Shinobu Blended Mizanera Oak. So let's do this. Do it. Hello, Pamela. Are you there? Hello, are you? Hello I'm here. Hello. How are you, my friend? Do you read me? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good, actually. Good. Yeah, not good. too bad. Good. Happy to hear your voice. Mm-hmm. As I am to hear yours, as always. Um, I'm getting sick of. I get sick of Canadian accents. Sometimes I just need a little, a little hit of that Scottish, you know, brogue. Is that what it's called? Brogue. Brogue. Yeah. yeah. Do you forget that I have an accent when you haven't heard from um, me for a while? Do I forget? Do you? No, definitely not. Not with your accent there. No offense. No, but then you come on and you hear me. Do you remember? No? All right. Just wondered. <laughs> wondered if it was a surprise every time when I go, Hello. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, no. no, no. I mean, it's it's a pleasure every time I hear your voice, no matter what. So there you go. Do you like hearing my Canadian accent? Does it help? Does it? Uh... Yeah, you have a beautiful voice. That's why I chose you for this podcast. Thank you. Appreciate that very much. <laughs> Isn't it cool that we've actually done this whole podcast apart from the very first episode completely remotely mm-hmm. yeah a little fun fact for you listeners yeah we've not we've been we've been one episode in the same room That's yeah crazy. and then pandemic time yeah we i know are, we are truly a pandemic podcast and we're following all the rules and regulations are. we're very good <laughs> law-abiding citizens yep who like Such to get real our, followers yeah like to get our drink on though at the same time so this was the solution Okay, Pam, let's whiskey get to whiskey-dos. Whiskey news. Well, Japanese whiskey certainly making the headlines this week. It sure is. You want to, uh, yeah, what's going on, Pam? Tell us. Well, as you know, they have revised some of the rules and uh, set some new standards for Japanese whiskey. Yeah, which is completely um, perfect. It's a perfect segue for our topic today, which is all on Japanese whiskey. So um, I'm gonna, we're, I'm not gonna die. We're not gonna dive too much into this particular uh, whiskey news because we are gonna talk about it at the end. At the end, yes, it let's... all ties together. Good, good. Let's yeah. do a deep dive into some rules and regulations, Chelsea. You, <laughs> you know, you're <laughs> your rule follower. I'm a big rule follower, so this was very exciting for me. Very mm-hmm. exciting. 
Well, you know, normally we really just focus on Scotch whiskey, mm-hmm. uh, but because it was in the news and and there's so much com- so many conversations happening around Japanese whiskey, we just felt the need that, to to dive into this and and talk about it a bit more in today's episode. So, um, I actually have two whiskeys we're going to taste today, changing it up a little bit. We'll have the first one right in the middle of the episode. Mm-hmm. So we'll do our, yeah, we'll do our thirst impression instead of the end. We'll do one in the middle and one in the end, right? Yeah, let's do that. So we're going to, we're going to try the Shinobu blended whiskey. It's 50% malt and 50% grain and ABV 43% on this one. Have you tried it before? Uh, No, I haven't, but I'm very much looking forward to it. Okay. Um, I'm just going to drop this bomb on you, Chelsea. I have never tried Japanese whiskey before, ever. That's de- that's dead air because I'm in absolute shock. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, eh, oh, great. The internet's going again. <laughs> no, that was me being absolutely speechless. You're shocked. Wow. Well, Pam, I think you're in for a treat because uh, Japanese whiskeys, well, they're known for their their, their quality. Um, so, I'm, yeah, I'm excited for you to, to try these. And they're yeah. very, very different too. So when what's the second one we'll be trying, actually? Second one we have is Kajira 10-year. So white oak virgin cask, 100% rice, uh, non-colored ABV 43%. So I have never tried a 100% rice, like a grain whiskey made of rice before. So this is going to be a very, I'm very excited to try these both, so... Yeah. These will be good thirst impressions, yeah. Yep, let's hope so. Um, so today we are going to take a little bit of a, a trip through time and learn a little bit about Japanese whiskey, kind of take you through the trials and tribulations of, of, of how it became to be this, you know, whiskey superpower that it is now. So um, I don't know, you, do, you know, do you know much about the history of Japanese whiskey, Pam? Honestly, nothing. I'm so excited to learn. And I know that you have actually been to Japan and visited distilleries there. So yeah, there to learn from. Yeah. So yeah, I was, I was very fortunate enough to, yeah, visit a few, uh, yeah, distilleries in Japan and kind of immerse myself into some of the, uh, the, uh, drinking and cocktail culture there. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited to do this episode for sure. sure. Very cool. When were you there? I was there 2006, seven to eight. Wait. Oh my God. (laughs) I was there in 2018. So it was a few years ago now. Yeah. Not, not too long ago. Okay. So Pam, um, yeah, let's get into talking about Japanese whiskey. You know what? We're going to take a little trip through time. Uh, we're going to take a few a few trips through time. But first, let's head back to 2001. Whiskey Magazine names Nika's Yochi Single Cask the winner of their Best of the Best Award. And uh, this is very significant because this is the first time that that award was given to a non-Scotch. Uh, so as you can imagine, it turned a few heads. And it had a lot of people wondering, like, who dare challenge the almighty scotch and and we, Japanese whiskey? 
where is this coming from? Because at this time, 2001, it was not really on anyone's radar. So even though it was getting recognition on the international scene, it still remained a bit of a niche category for a few more years during the during the uh, early 2000s. And, you know, bottles of, of rare Japanese whiskeys that would be like coveted today uh, were kind of still collecting dust on liquor stores for a few more years. But it wouldn't be too much longer where all of a sudden Japanese uh, whiskey would just rise and become this like I said, whiskey superpower. And, uh, but how did it get to be that way? We're going to talk about that today. So, um, if we're going to start at the beginning, we're going to start, Pam, we're going to start at the beginning. Okay. The very, very beginning. Yes. It's a very, I hear it's a very good place to start. So, um, 1853. That's a, that's a pretty, that's pretty, that's a long Sarah time Lee. ago. Sarah yep. Lee yep. 1853. Commodore Matthew Perry. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Enter friend's joke. I don't know anything about him to say. Like, um, I wish she said like a very like a very smart man called Matthew Perry, and I could say, Is he be any smarter? <laughs> be any more looking to, you know, start treaty negotiations with the Japanese? Yeah. <laughs> could he be any more of a Commodore? <laughs> Could he be? <laughs> so yeah, so Japanese whiskey uh, unfortunately starts with uh, Matthew Perry joke. Um, <laughs> but in 1853, <laughs> Commodore Matthew Perry, um, he from this from the United States, he entered Edo Bay with his ships, wanting to start treaty negotiations with the Japanese. But you know, this would prove to be a little bit of a challenge because, well. Japan was under a strict policy of national seclusion, so no one was allowed in or out under penalty of death. So, you know, risky. (laughs) And uh, this was going on since 1633, so that's over 200 years of national seclusion. But, uh, yeah, but our boy Perry, he was a risk taker, and he was determined to end their isolation estate. So he, on behalf of the president, Fillmore of the USA, he gave uh, some gifts to kind of get the conversation started. And one of these said gifts was American whiskey, which wasn't bourbon. It was actually most likely rye. Mm -hmm. But anyways, the Japanese told him to get the F out uh, and don't come back. But they kept the whiskey. I know, rude like rude he brought yeah. Some, someone gives me whiskey party. i at least say thank you and then tell them to get out but um <laughs> gcf yeah right so so yeah they told him to get out don't come back uh they took his whiskey though but uh he left he did leave but only to re- return about six months later like i said he's very determined wow. uh but he returned with even more whiskey so he eventually gained permission to enter the bay uh, where he and his men brought gallons and gallons and gallons of whiskey as gifts to uh, a bunch of high-ranking Japanese officials. And 20 gallons alone was for the emperor. So Wow. That's a lot of whiskey. He must, must have had a big party after that. Yeah, he really, really, really wanted to start treaty negotiations. <laughs> um well. So then on March 31st, 1854, less than a year from this first visit, the Treaty of Peace and Amity between the USA and Japan was signed and uh, the 220 years of Japanese seclusion was over. Oh, whiskey sealed the deal. Yeah, well, you know, did it facilitate it? Who knows? But I'm sure it didn't help. Or sorry, I'm sure it (laughs) (laughs) did. 
Oops. I'm sure it didn't hurt, right? So regardless of its efficiency in negotiation, uh, whiskey has officially entered Japan. That was 19, no, 1854? 1854. Wow. They got their first taste of Western liquor, right? Right, right. So, okay. So what happens after that? Well, over the following years, there was a lot of talk amongst the Japanese of this Western liquor, uh, which they called Yoshu. Uh, But the interest really began to peak during the Meiji Restoration period. Uh, which kind of there was a really big emphasis on new technologies and new industries and a big shift in the social and economic systems of Japan. Oh, right. So um, it's like their industrial revolution. Yes. And, and and a lot of Western culture began to flow into Japan during this, uh, during the Meiji Restoration. And um, at this time, they really tried to actually try to re- recreate this Western liquor or this this Yoshu. But there was a few things that were preventing this from happening successfully. So, okay. So first of all, I guess when you're making whiskey, you got to know what it's made of and you got to know the methods, but they didn't know any of that. So, so a lot of this was a lot of trial and error on their part. They were kind of steeping tea and herbs into Kirin, which is like cooking wine or sochu. Mm. Um, and uh, they also didn't have the proper equipment either. Um, when you're making whiskey, you need to kind of be able to rectify it to about, you know, 80 or so percent. So they didn't have these like column stills or, or, or the, the technology to do that right now. Th- that, that, that time they were making sochu and that's about only 25% ABV. And what so, were they using? Um, just kind of crude Olympic still setups, you know, cause sochu is only distilled. Well, at least back then was only distilled one time. So very crude distillation. Right. Right. No, no high rectification needed. Um, so that's another thing that was preventing them to making this Western liquor. And, um, the final thing is that, um, there was some very uneven tariffs from that treaty I mentioned earlier, um, that was eventually renegotiated and then taxes on imported goods were increased, which now made, uh, it cheaper to make Western liquor in house instead of importing it. Um, through wherever, right? So the taste for this Western liquor continued to grow over the years, but there was yet to be a true Japanese distillery. But uh, that would all that was about to change because two of the most important figures in Japanese whiskey are about to come into the scene, and that is Shizuro mm. Tori and Mazataki Takatsuru. Well, well done. Thank you. I try. <laughs> I don't want to mess up their names because they are legends. Very important. Um, yeah. Yeah. So these are two players, uh, very extremely important uh, to the development of true Japanese whiskey. Um, as they founded, which is now known as Centauri and Nika Distilleries, respectively. Wow. Um, yeah. And their tales kind of weave in and out of each other. So <laughs> I cannot talk about Japanese whiskey, but without talking about uh, Sijiratori and Masataka Katsuro. Okay, so let's well, let's do that. Okay, that's super interesting. Like, I obviously don't know that much about Japanese whiskey, as I said, but I'm sure if anyone listening to this who doesn't know that much has definitely heard of Suntory, for mm-hmm. sure. Definitely, yeah, yeah. It's one of the biggest beverage companies in the world Absolutely. or companies in the world let's say and what uh, you just told me there made me think as well um 
do you think that their lack of distillery, um, Japanese distilleries and stuff, was also to do with money? Like, I know when we talk about Scottish history and the distilleries, a lot of it was to do with money and um, a lot of the distilleries that were on the mainland were um, taken over by the rich mm. and poor people weren't allowed them, <laughs> basically. <laughs> I'm not sure if it had to do with just, you know, centuries long feudalism or or if it's, you know, just no real chance for innovation because of just the, you know, socioeconomic climate that they lived in for the past 200 so years. Yeah. So who, so who knows? I, want, I just wondered about it because I was thinking how it came to be. But obviously, Scotland is very different in the sense that they were distilling for years and years. Um, and it was just anyone was allowed to do it. So there was loads of distilleries. But then when it came time that they were like, this is making money, that's why there's only really a lot of big distilleries in the cities. And the people that lived in like the smaller areas had their distillery equipment removed. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure. That's interesting. I mean, sure they like, well, obviously they were distilling. They were making, you know, sochu and sake and stuff like that. But uh, uh, yeah, no, this is, I think this is just the introduction of actual whiskey or, you know, Western, you- Western liquor. Yeah. Well, like you said, it's the very beginning. Okay. No, yeah. I was just asking. I just no, it's a good question. made me think. Made me think. Yeah, yeah, so that's a very good, very inquisitive question. All right. Um, okay. So let's first uh, let's first talk about Tory here. So uh, born in 1879, Tory was born right during that Meiji period I mentioned earlier. Um, he ended his uh, schooling at age 13, and he entered into an apprenticeship with this pharmaceutical wholesaler in Osaka, and they carried a lot of Western liquors. So uh, he engaged in a lot of stylish Western pursuits and mastered a lot of techniques of mixing and blending. And uh, he also gained a keen interest in Western liquor. <laughs> At the turn of the 19th century, uh, Shinzir Tori went uh, independent, founded his own store called the Shori, uh, sorry, the Tori Shoten, where he began to uh, produce and sell his own wines. His first attempts were unfortunately not well received by the Japanese consumer. Oh dear, um, you were a little too sour. For, for the taste of the Japanese. They liked a little sweeter things at that time. Mm-hmm. But um, he used some of his uh, blending skills he acquired from working at the, at the wholesaler um, to make something more palatable um, using kind of that excess wine that wasn't selling. Um, so in 1907, he created this breakthrough product called the Akadama Port Wine, which will prove to be actually be the, the cornerstone product for uh, Tori. Oh, um, but even though he had the successful uh, port wine under his belt, he still had his eyes set on making true whiskey, and uh, he had actually a gut feeling too that a whiskey era was imminent. So, actually, this is a funny little anecdote. So he was—he uh, accidentally left some alcohol in a wine barrel and forgot about it for a few years. And when he checked it out years later, he was kind of he was super impressed about the transformation. That happened and, and the flavor profile that was coming out of it. And so he decided that, hey, he's like, I'm going to sell this and bottle it and sell it. 
So in 1919, he decided to sell it and it was a huge success and it sold out very quickly, which only um, perpetuated this idea that this whiskey era was imminent in Japanese culture. And uh, he actually called it the accidental whiskey um, oh, and so many stories of the these like prize award winning whiskeys are all little mistakes that mm-hmm. turn into something fantastic. That's yeah. cool. Happy little accidents. Yeah, Bob Ross would say. He then decided to invest his entire family fortune uh, to start up uh, Japan's first whiskey distillery, and he started the Kotobukaya Company, which is now known as Suntory. Ever hear of it? Ever oh, heard that of one. it? know that one i know one thing about japanese whiskey that's it there we go that's a good thing to know it's a big thing to know um so yeah even though he had uh he had the money we had the the drive the only issue was he didn't know how uh tori's initial idea uh was to hire a scotsman to help uh someone to teach him kind of this uh, how to make whiskey in the scottish tradition oh show him the ropes yeah show him the ropes uh catch the fire um Mm -hmm. As, as, it, as it were. Um, but he actually caught wind of a Japanese man who happened to be study, who, sorry, who happened to study whiskey making in Scotland. Uh, he also studied chemistry at the University of Glasgow. And this man was Masataka Ketatsuru, who I mentioned oh, earlier. And this, and, and also this man, he was also later known as the father of Japanese whiskey. Um, big title <laughs> yes so, so obviously he was hired and now officially part of the Kotobukaya limited company and uh Katsuro and tori were now we're now uh in partnership together Partners. well mm-hmm. a legend yeah so um a little background of uh Takatsuro. so he was the son of a sake producer and his father had always uh well he always had high hopes that he would carry on with the family business but like tori uh he instead developed a strong interest in this western liquor um he eventually found himself working for one setsu shuzo uh, one of the main producers of imitation whiskey. There was a lot of this imitation whiskey going around. Um, and uh, so, he, yeah, he had a job with him. But as more and more scotch entered Japan, they really became worried that their like imitations would start to really disappoint the consumer because, you know, scotch is like liquid gold, right? Yeah. So Takasura was sent to Scotland to, like I said before, steal the fire and everything he could about making scotch and and, 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 uh, then bringing it back to Japan and applying it and making Japanese whiskey from that. So he got himself a five-day apprenticeship with Longmorn Distillery. Learned as much as he could there. Um, Then he went on to learn um, a lot about the coffee still, like a column still at a grain whiskey distillery. And then uh, that was followed up with a five-month apprenticeship at Hazelburn Distillery. Wow. So he did a lot of learning. His trip there. He did a lot of learning. Yep. He was doing a lot of note-taking, a lot of learning, but... He didn't just do learning, Pam. He did a little loving as well. Oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) He actually fell in love and married a Scottish girl named Rita Cohen, who happened to be the daughter of the family he was uh, staying with while he was doing his tenure in Scotland. Oh, my God. The daughter of the family he was staying with. He was. How scandalous. That's dangerous. That's that's a dangerous game. Rita Cohen. Yeah. Wow. Rita 
Cohen, yep. And uh, by 1920, he and his new wife, Rita, moved back to Japan. She was uh, very supportive in his dream of um, finally making real Japanese whiskey in Japan. Wow. And this was what by now we're in like 1920, did you say? Yep, 1920. You got it. There you go. Wow, cool. I love this timeline you've got going on here. (laughs) We're really filling in all this history. It's amazing. I'm taking you through the, the ages, like I told you. I, told I love you. it. Buckle up. So now we have Tori and, uh, and Takatsuru. They're partnered up, ready to make history. But first, they need to build a distillery. So Takatsuru wanted a terrain and climate that was uh, geographically similar to Scotland. That was his idea. But Tori wanted actually the opposite of that. He wanted something that was completely and uniquely Japanese. So... Um, you know, I, you know, since Tori was the guy with the funds, mm. he won. He won that battle. Mm-hmm. Good. <laughs> and, yeah. And Tori uh, ended up purchasing land near the village of Yamazaki in 1923. Yeah. And uh, then spent another two million yen and built the distillery. And officially at 11:11 a.m. on November 11th, 1924. Whiskey production in Japan had officially begun, and Yamazaki Distillery became the first whiskey distillery in Japanese history. Wow! Do you think number elevens is lucky number then? I wonder, because like uh, there are a lot of elevens in there. Number eleven, eleven, eleven. Who knows? That's actually my lucky number. Is it? Uh huh. So you have like a kinship to Yamazaki I must that do. you don't even know about. I must do. You and you and you and uh, Tori. You guys are. <laughs> So this was obviously an amazing accomplishment and a dream come true for Tori and Takatsuru. Um, but unfortunately, it wasn't smooth sailing from here on out. Oh, no. What happened? Well, <clears throat> let me tell you. So first thing, um, they made their first whiskey, 1920 wine. Sorry, tiny wine. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? Have you been having a couple of wines? Seriously. <laughs> you better put that in. That was okay. gold. Okay, 1921. <laughs> so, yeah, in 1929, they made their first whiskey, the Suntory Shirafuda. And okay, I also apologize if I'm mispronouncing these Japanese names. <laughs> I'm sure I am, but I'm you're trying my best. It with, no, you're saying it with confidence. I'm like hanging on your every word. <laughs> The 1929. Use- <laughs> yes, 1929. So yeah, so they made their first whiskey. They released it, the Centauri Shirafuda, which uh, translates as white label. And uh, it was an absolute flop, unfortunately. It was uh, too peaty, too smoky for oh. the Japanese consumer, unfortunately. They weren't ready. They weren't ready yet. So, um, and at the same time, or, uh, you know, around that time too, Tori and Takatsuro also seemed to have a lot of issues, uh, um, personal issues around Uh-oh. this time. And uh, Takatsuro was, I guess, demoted to a brewery that was also owned by the Kotobakaya company. Wait, he was um, demoted? Why? Demo- I, I don't really we know. We don't know? He just got demoted. Um, even but though he was apparently- like a partner. Yeah. So you got to assume something, there was maybe a, big conflict and of interest and or not conflict you gotta think there something was something bad big, happened yeah there was probably some you know they, they didn't meet eye to eye on a lot of things mm-hmm. I think, maybe um so eventually he left the company uh to start his own though in uh yoichi 
Hokkaido, a place, um, although it's inconveniently located, he always considered to be kind of the ideal site for him to make whiskey. So earlier when they were scouting out a site for which would now be Yamazaki, you know, how they had opposing views of where it should be. Yeah. So um, Takasuro, uh, yeah, he wanted this, this location because it actually was very similar to the Scottish mm. climate and terrain. So he um, got what he wanted eventually, he just yeah. had to wait. He had to wait. So at the beginning, he uh, this place, it basically produced mostly apple juice um, while oh. they were kind of setting up and gearing up for whiskey production. And um, this whiskey, this distillery, would eventually become Nika. There which you go. We all know and love. Yeah, brilliant. And during this time too, even though Takatsuro was and his expertise was no longer part of Suntory, uh, in 1937, Suntory made the iconic Suntory Kakuban, which is the yellow label, uh, which would prove to be his, sorry, would prove to be its most successful drink, even to this day, actually. And you probably oh. recognize that iconic yellow label, mm-hmm. a square bottle, and uh, yeah, it was a truly a, like a pinnacle moment for Suntory. Fantastic. Okay, so you got a little a little background how Nika was now formed, Yamazaki is uh established. Let's take a time now to do our first thirst impression. <laughs> yes, and it really is the first for me. Okay. Okay, so yes, our first thirst impression this episode is the Shinobu blend. Mm-hmm. Oh, let me just stop you quickly because usually around this time we like to do a cork pop, but oh, yeah. um, we don't, unfor- unfortunately, both of these whiskeys are twist-offs. So I'm just going to try my best here to give you that sonic experience. Okay, here we go. You hear that? I hear it. That's okay. So there we go. That's in. <laughs> that's the substitute for the cork. There you go. It's that. Uh, it's not as impressive as a cork, but it'll do. It'll do. So yes, the Shinobu. Uh, the distillery is located in Niigata, in the Koshi area of Japan. Now I hope I've said that right. Um, which is famous for its three white treasures. Chelsea, can you guess what they are? Three white treasures. Um. Uh, I'm drawing a blank. What could they be? They are snow. Oh, I was, I was gonna say snow actually. Rice oh, makes sense. And sake uh, also makes sense. Those are yeah. Okay. Okay. Three awesome things there. Yeah. So the what the Shinobu Distillery do is they gather up um, a selection of high quality whiskies and then pop them in bourbon and sherry casks for more than three years. And then they are finished in the Mizunara oak. Yeah, very, very, very rare um, oak. Do you know anything about the Mizunara oak? I do not. By the way? No, no, tell me. Um, well, uh, Mizunara means uh, water oak. And um, because of the, its high moisture content, and um, it's really tricky to work with, apparently. And so, in order to work with it, you they need um, it's actually very very porous. So they need a really dense old uh, tree to really make it work. So 
every one of these casks are at least the, the the tree is actually 200 years old at least so they only make about 150 of these casks a year making them very highly sought after so it's really cool mm. that we're getting to try um some mizanera finish whiskey it's really neat well let's uh, let's give it a try okay start um i'm getting some really interesting like int- like 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 really warm spices from it what about you and a lot of like vanilla coconutiness as well yeah i feel like um on the nose it's like more of an acidic um maybe that's where that astringency that i was thinking of like an acidic astringence kind of vibes going on yeah but i think so but then when you have a taste the that sweetness overpowers all of that and you forget completely about that i think you know what the more and more i drink this every sip i have of this gets honestly gets it gets better and better i don't know if you yeah i would agree with you um like to me that the sweetness though it's like it's sugary it's like icing oh i like that yeah, like do, you, a, do you get that yeah i actually do i totally know what you mean yeah it's definitely it definitely you can tell it's not like a, a single malt but i'm really i'm really enjoying it actually like more and more the more i drink it <laughs> yeah it's good it's definitely um it's got a lot to it but i know what you mean it's like you know you're not drinking a single malt but it's very interesting yeah so i don't know I'd, I'd recommend this one for uh people to try for sure if they want to try something a little different and kind of get um get a taste of some japanese style whiskey well i'm quite pleased with my first japanese whiskey that i tried then it's really Very enjoyable i'm mm-hmm. i'm so surprised you haven't had like even like anika or yamasaki no you know i haven't i don't know if it was like i just didn't know much about it or anything you're so i just, just didn't bother just a scotch snob and you're like yeah well or bust yeah i think so okay. um no not at all you know that's not me I but know. i just uh, i just didn't i didn't know to what to even start with right mm-hmm. i think that's maybe the thing um so and my husband actually bought me a a, a bottle of uh, japanese whiskey and like fairly recently and I said to him, I'm not going to drink it because I'm waiting until this episode till I hear all about this from Chelsea. And uh, and I'm going to try these these two first. Well, there you go. And yeah. um, I, you know what? It's not, it's not surprising that you don't know too much about it because like as we're finding out here, you know, it is a relatively new phenomenon. It's only been about 10 or so years since it really kind of broke into the Picked market. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, very nice. I enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, do you have any final thoughts on this one? Yeah, there's definitely some kind of big crispness to it. Like mm-hmm. a crisp pear, vanilla, cream soda, some yeah. It, but it yeah, it's really interesting. And mm-hmm. I'm very happy to be consuming it right me, now. Me too, me too. And I was just thinking there how we always bang on about blends and how um, that's another thing that sometimes people can be a bit uh, snobby about. Yeah. But um, the fact that this is put in a Mizunara oat cask, mm-hmm. like that is impressive yeah. and definitely something to talk about. Yeah, definitely. The, uh, yeah, and it ain't cheap, those uh, those casks either. So yeah, mm-hmm. they, yeah, I think it's, yeah, definitely, definitely worth a try. Thank <laughs> you.
Okay, so we where did we leave off? We left off with the creation of the iconic Suntory Kakubin, the yellow label. And um, now, um, you know, the whiskey, Japanese whiskey is off to the races, essentially. Let's uh, talk about what happens next, shall we? Let's do it. Okay. Over the next few years, um, we will see uh, the coming of a very pinnacle war. You might have heard of it, World War II. Mm. Yep. <laughs> and um, at this time, uh, both distilleries saw actually a huge increase in sales and production during this time. Um, as Centauri put it, liquor is inherent in war. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of um, soldiers, their first drink ever was maybe a Centauri whiskey during this time. So, in fact, uh, Centauri made whiskey especially for the military for both the Japanese and for American soldiers as well during the American occupation after the war ended. So, um, yeah, for actually both Nika and Centauri, they, uh, the war was, was good for business. All right. As it was for May- many yeah, businesses. Yeah. yeah. So the Japanese uh, whiskey industry continued to grow well into the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and it was led by, you know, Centauri and Nika. And uh, just a little FYI, um, Centauri became the official name in 1964. It was previously called uh, Kotobukaya, uh, as I mentioned earlier, but uh, but now, 1964, it's called Centauri. So I'm just going to kind of yada, yada, yada over the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And uh, happened just anyway. Get- a lot of things. A lot of I'm things happen. But, but, <laughs> but, um, it's, um, but we're just going to skip kind of to the '80s because um, this period um, in the '80s would begin basically a two-decade-long decline in whiskey consumption. Ooh, yeah, unfortunately. So just uh, after the between- glory days of the war. After- wow. Yeah, after the glory days, uh, it kind of peaked in the in in the in the '80s, and um, for the next twenty years. Consumption went from 380,000 kiloliters of whiskey to 75,000 um, kiloliters of whiskey. That's a that's a 20% decline during that 20-year period. So that's a that's a big decline, yeah. right? Nightmare. Um yeah, it's a nightmare. So uh, during that era though, not all was lost. In 1984 and 1986, Centauri and Nika both released did, uh, released their first um, single malts, so no longer blends. Um, Centauri did their Centauri Pure Malt Whiskey, Yamazaki, and Nika released the Nika Single Malt Hokkaido 12-year. So yeah, both kind of pinnacle moments for the distilleries have their own, you know, single malts, right? Um, but, uh, they tried doing a lot of experimentation as well. They tried to appeal to, you know, younger generations, Mm. but unfortunately the market continued to shrink a lot. So we're going to cut now to 2001 again, back to where we started, which could be called maybe the, the new chapter of Japanese whiskey, how Japanese whiskey got its groove back. And yeah. And now around this time, the global the global perspective of Japanese whiskey uh, will begin to shift. So let's kind of get into how that happened. 
like I mentioned at the top of the show, yeah, the whiskey whiskey magazine named the Nika Yoichi single cast the winner of the best of the best of the award. So, like I said, turned a lot of heads. But this wasn't the last award that Japanese whiskey would win during this time. From then on, Japanese whiskey kind of topped some of the globe's most competitive whiskey categories, taking home awards for like best blended whiskey, best grain whiskey, best single cask whiskey um, at the World Whiskey Awards. And and, um, they were really, really, you know, raking up all the accolades at this time. So um, even though they were being recognized worldwide, it wasn't helping things for the bottom line still. The supply was still outweighing the demand. And um, unfortunately, a lot of production for these Japanese distilleries stopped or slowed down uh, during kind of the early 2000s. And even Yamazaki, which is a huge distillery, only was, well, was rumored to only be produced, uh, be producing on Mondays. What? So, yeah. So, business time. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So even though, yeah, it, w- it was, it was getting a lot of accolades, but it wasn't helping the bottom line. So, sailing. Jeez. Yeah. So Suntory decided to do something about this and they, they decided to um, start maybe appealing to a younger crowd and campaign for the highball, which was very popular in the fifties and sixties kind of fell off um, uh, since then. But what it basically was is just soda and whiskey. That's what they call a highball in uh, Japan. Have you ever heard of a highball? Like a Japanese highball? Only no, I haven't, no. Yeah. So I've heard of a highball, but I didn't realize it was a it was a Japanese cocktail thing. Yeah, it's essentially, yeah, just soda and whiskey on ice. So they really, really campaigned for that. And they called it um, the Kaku Highball, kind of, you know, with people intending for people to use the Kakubin Suntory, this is Suntory Kakubin whiskey. Uh, If you remember that really popular one I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, And it quickly became a phenomenon. And it became like a very common drink in the izakayas um, throughout Japan, as well as people drinking at home. So just to show how fast that these ready-to-drink cans of Kaku highballs, um, how fast they grew. In 2008, they sold about 38,000 cases. And in 2009, 6.2 million cases a year were sold. So huge, huge increase in sales. Wow, that's amazing. It kind of reminds me of like when recently, like everyone was drinking Negronis, how Negronis just came back and they were Mm -hmm. super trendy and everyone was drinking it. It was all over Instagram and it just brought Campari right back. And everyone has one in their house and it has a bottle in their house. Yeah, there you go. So it's the power of a power of a drink. And in this case, it was the power of the highball. So um, other distilleries besides Centauri also capitalize on this trend. And um, yeah, all of a sudden, their bottom line uh, started to increase. So so now we have, you know, the highballs are helping increasing the sales. It's getting really popular. Um, it's winning tons of awards. Um, but remember, um, a lot of these uh, companies, a lot of these distilleries were really were halting production. Mm-hmm. So the supply of Japanese whiskey was uh, dwindling. <laughs> All of a sudden, there was just way more demand than supply. So demand was becoming so high that it was starting to outperform scotch in the uh, in the auction market. Ah, so, for example, yeah, I know, right? Sorry about it, Pam. <laughs> 
<laughs> in 2005, a bottle of the uh, Karuzawa, 52-year-old, sold for 118,000 US dollars, knocking off the Macallan as the most collectible of the lot. Which wow, huge deal! Yeah, that is a huge deal. That's insane. Yeah dethroned the McAllen. And uh, just a little fun fact, um, the Karazawa, uh, one of the kind of um, victims of that, of those distilleries that were closed in the early 2000s. So they did close, but they were known for the rich and sherry, uh, rich sherry caskings. Um, but there is such a high demand for them now and such a limited supply that it's probably one of the most cults um, you know, cult collector items of Japanese whiskey. So if you have yourself a bottle of the Karazawa, um, big points, it's a uh, collector's gold dust. So, yeah. do you have one of those that would stoop <laughs> oh, you? Oh yeah, yeah. Just uh, just got it sitting out. <laughs> everyone, everyone, moan over for a drama that. Oh, I would love to try. So, please, <laughs> I hope you have it. <laughs> so, um, also, just another to add to that, um, in uh, 2020, uh, a single bottle of the Yamazaki 55 year old was auctioned for. Do you want to take a guess? Oh, six million. Oh what? Yes, <laughs> you're very close. Six point two million dollars, and that exceeded expectations more than tenfold, and it broke like world records. It's kind of like it's collecting whiskey in the is kind of like playing the stock market, isn't it? Mm. In a way, yeah, yeah. Oh, for it's sure. Like the long oh. game. You're playing the long game. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So definitely. So, but no one, no one anticipated. So Yamazaki, fifty-five-year-old, selling for this much—is it kind of like, like dope the, coin, like, or or it's like what's that? The GameStop uh, whole thing in the stock market. Yeah. It's like dope coin right now. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yamazaki, fifty-five-year-old was is 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 yeah. Is that? Is that? So um, is that? <laughs> so um, okay. So there's obviously now there's a huge demand and not a big supply. There's a big gap in the market. So around this kind of 2016 era, there a smaller craft market really began to emerge as well. And uh, distilleries that were halting production or no longer made whiskey, like Mars Shinsu, they started producing again. And um, also, oh, it opened the doors for all those smaller companies to just hop yeah. on the hop on the money train. Good, mm-hmm. that's great, exactly. And even larger distilleries like Yamazaki um, and Hakushu. Um, they also started ramping up production. They added more pot stills to their to their collection and um yeah it's just i think the the amount of distilleries doubled in just a year so it's just like extraordinary extraordinary growth yeah Mm -hmm. a big boom that's fantastic yeah and a lot of these distilleries too well these these kind of new ones are aiming to get their first release by the 2021 olympics so um i don't think they were banking on a pandemic no hit but uh, nonetheless, we are coming into a very interesting time uh, for Japanese whiskey because, as you, as I said, there's a lot more production, a wider variety, kind of going to be coming to the to the general consumer, and hopefully, though, this large supply will allow prices to go down, and you know, maybe people can start drinking their Japanese whiskey instead of collecting mm-hmm. it, um, or will it just be another? version of the scottish you know the whiskey lock that happened mm. in the 80s when there's a just a huge overproduction and an abundance of supplies yeah. so i guess only time will tell yes 
And that's where is where we have left off, I guess. Well, Chelsea, I love how you Quentin Tarantino does there and brought us right back, right back to the start. That was awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, I was going to say something about making something about talking about feet because also Quentin Tarantino really likes uh, feet. He likes Japanese culture a lot. Oh yeah, he does like Japanese culture. Yeah. Yep, he does like Japanese. Very cool. Yeah, I I know I know he's probably listening. Oh sure, um, yeah, yeah. Hi, Quentin. I think uh, I think I've seen Quentin Tarantino at Gmail like subscribe to the. Oh, we mailing did. He list. signed up for a yeah, newsletter. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, be very disappointed. <laughs> I honestly, uh, I honestly had no idea there was such a, a like a long and fascinating history behind yeah. this. This was. Very enjoyable. Thank you so much for for telling me all this. Like you're welcome. And to be honest, this is like scratching the surface. Like I, like I said, I, I yada 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 over a lot of things. When you were in Japan, did you drink a lot of those highballs? Uh, a matter of fact, I did. I absolutely did. And I when I actually I heard about it for the first time. I think one of the first days we were there, we actually went to the Yamazaki distillery, which I was talking mm-hmm. about. Wow. And they gave us a little uh, a little um, seminar on how to make a highball properly because it actually has um, it's very has a lot of technique it has to be done the proper way oh. there's a procedure to it. And I think I sent you I sent you how to do it. Do you want to? Yeah. Do you Let me tell, see. Tell us how. So here's how you make a proper Japanese highball. Yes, Chelsea just texted me this. Let me open up. A highball is as follows. Squeeze a wedge of lime into a highball glass or beer mug. Then throw the lemon rind and just throw it in. Just chuck it in. Just chuck it in. Okay. Uh, Add lots of ice and one part whiskey to four parts soda. Pouring slowly, may add slowly, slowly yep. then gently stir once. If you stir any more than one time, two is far too many. Zero is not near enough. Once is the perfect amount. Just once. Yeah, I just am once. Gonna, gonna do this. Love it. Not good. Not right now, but I will through the week. I'll do a. <laughs> I'll do an Instagram photo of it for you. You know what what I love about uh, highballs? It's kind of like rehydrated beer in a way. You know what I mean? Because like whiskey is like, or whiskey is like distilled beer. But then if you take beer, or if you take whiskey, (laughs) and then you add carbonation and water to it, you're kind of rehydrating it. You're like making beer, like you're yeah, like backwards day. Yeah, it's like backwards day. I think I think it's (laughs) that is kind of cool. Very nerdy yeah. and cool. I like it. That's awesome. Okay. Well, Chelsea, as you uh, mentioned at the start of the episode, and uh, there's been some new rules and regulations put around Japanese whiskey that you were going to tell us more about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of fits in perfectly to kind of where I left off. So I mentioned, you know, there was this huge demand for Japanese whiskey and not enough supply. So you can imagine a few grifters out there trying to like slap the Japanese kind of label onto whatever and calling it Japanese whiskey to kind of rake in some of that profit, right? Mm. So a good way of perhaps stopping this would maybe having some official rules uh, to, to what um, qualifies as Japanese whiskey because it was wasn't established until really 
this year. And it will be official on actually May 1st. So um, the official codified rules um, established by the Japan Spirit and Liquors Market Association uh, have uh, kind of come up with some rules and regulations to, you know, what qualifies Japanese whiskey as Japanese whiskey. So it's kind of very similar to Scottish um, whiskey in that it has to be fermented, distilled, aged in Japan, has to be aged for three years in wooden casks. Uh, it doesn't have specifically, has, doesn't have to be oak and uh, has to be bottled at a minimum of 40%. And the label can't mislead people either. So you can't put any Japanese figures on there or images of flags. So yeah, they actually have some kind of regulations now to prevent some of these, uh, these, you know, fake knockoffs, fake Japanese knockoffs. Yeah. So So there you go. It really is an interesting time then. Yeah, it truly is. Uh Yep. And I'm really excited to see, you know, what happens in the next few years. Cause I think it's going to be very interesting to see what comes out, what the pricing's going to look like. And um, yeah, really interesting times. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to get into whiskey, uh, Japanese whiskey, now's a great time to do it. So there you go, Pam. Uh, yeah. Well, this episode was a great place to start. Um, I think we should celebrate that with, uh, with another dram. Yes. So Wait. let's get into our second Thirst impression. <laughs> Say that five times fast. <laughs> All right, so we have the Kajira here. Kajira, I mean. All right, so we have the Kajira here. And uh, Chelsea, you've got the bottle there. Why don't you see? Is there a cork? Uh, so there's no cork again. So we're going to have to do uh, this. So here we go, guys. This is. Oh, so it's just a wee, wee screw top again. Um, yeah, did you do you not just love the artwork for this one though? Yeah, it's beautiful. I've always been a big fan of just Japanese uh design on, on the bottles, it's always so beautiful. But yeah, this one's really, I love all the snow and it's so neat. Yeah, it's it's a really gorgeous design of a, a big whale. Is it a blue whale? I don't actually know my whales that well. Oh, yeah, it looks like a. Humpback. Is that a humpback? I think you might be right. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's a humpback whale. It's a, a humpback whale, like possibly in the snow. But it's a very beautiful design. Um, and apparently the Kujira brand is quite inspired by by whales as they live along the Okinawa coastline where they are located. Oh. So there you have it. So cool. Yeah. And as you know, this is a particularly uh, unique whiskey as they use... Just, just rice, pure rice. hundred percent yeah. rice. This will be my first time having a whiskey that's hundred percent rice. So I'm really excited to try this. So Mashiro Distillery is one of the oldest distilleries in Okinawa. A family-run uh, distillery since 1883. This Kajira Ryuku whiskey is 100% selected rice distilled and matured in white oak virgin cask for more than 10 years. Say. Okinawa is the most southerly located subtropical island in Japan. Thanks to the warm climate, whiskey matures in shorter periods than others, and it gives a stronger aroma and a bolder taste. Ah, so yeah, so I was going to say that it's going to make it hopefully taste a lot richer. So this is probably like hopefully right up my alley. Okay, so let's let's give this a try. Okay, all right, here we go. First taste.
Wow. 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 That is um that is really uh buttery rich buttery. Definitely. I was trying to think what it was. You're right. It's totally It's like butter. Butter and like but it's like chocolate or something. Butterscotch. Maybe it's butterscotch. That's really good spice a little spiciness to it. But really this, buttery though. But the spice isn't it, it's not at the forefront of it. It's more it's more about that buttery. Flavor. It's like a, it's like it's like that baking spice, like a like a like a warm bread baking spice. Like that kind of thing. Like a, like a like a Christmas no, like a like a warm Christmas bun. Is that a thing? It could be, yeah, like a hot cross like, bun. Like a hot cross bun. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> a, warm a warm Christmas bun. <laughs> I was tr- I was picturing a man like a hot cross bun with butter on it. Yeah, melted butter on it. I really like it a lot. Well, I just um, I don't think I knew what to expect. Actually, I was just mm-hmm. thinking it would just be like sake. Yeah, or, or or like similarly the Shinobu flavor, but it's so vastly different. Yeah, and really intense flavor at the start, like mm-hmm. really intense. And then now the more I'm drinking it, the more I'm used to it, and I can kind of attempt to identify the flavors. But at first, it was like an overwhelming hot cross bun, very yeah. buttery, as yeah. you say. Definitely, you nailed it with that. Yeah, you know what? And I think uh, this is really good. I think to be trying other things. Like I find, you know, you and I drink a lot of scotch, and it can kind of, you know, isolate our palate a bit, mm-hmm. and kind of, well, you know, get a little bit, you know, used to only one type of profile. So I think this having something like this um, and the Shinobu, I think it's really good for us too to try yeah. something new and uh yeah definitely i can definitely appreciate this is really good yeah it's wildly different from yeah. the usual from the cherry bombs we normally, <laughs> normally yeah I, go I, towards. exactly exactly even though i love my cherry bomb i'm so happy to try this and you know what mm-hmm. like i'm gonna have i can't wait to have more of this so wow do you think do you think there's a woodiness to this i feel like uh-huh. it's not just a normal like wood flavor it's more like uh oily or or um like resin or something like a your grandpa's wood shop uh (laughs) no not as not as much as that like it's it's like a a mixture of like oiliness and with that wood somehow like yeah grandpa's in his wood shop he's oiling down his his creation eating some cock grush buns (laughs) okay i can visualize that yeah okay okay I feel like the finish is quite long and that I know we keep saying butter, but it doesn't actually leave like that taste doesn't actually end. It's from start to finish for me. Yeah, I think it's I think for me, the finish is more more is long, but I think I get a lot more of that spice that I was maybe thinking of mm. coming through. Oh, maybe. yeah. The spice kicks in. Yeah. Um, Starts with that butterness, sweetness throughout. But finishes with that like little spice for sure. I so. can feel the spice, but I still t- I just taste the butter to the end as well. I really do. How cool! How cool! I'm down. I'm down with this. I'm down with this. I have time for this all day. I'd love this. Yeah, this is really great. I'm really enjoying it. These are awesome. 
Well, those were absolutely delicious. I'm really happy that I got to try those two fantastic uh, whiskies as the first uh, yeah. Japanese whiskies I got to try. So thank you to TS Global for uh, sending those to us to try out. Um, yeah, just brilliant. Thank you so much. Really, really lovely. Thank you so much. Okay, I guess that wraps up episode two of season two of this uh, podcast. <laughs> we want to thank uh, Stuart Bobbin for the uh, creation of our theme song. This is the life. Thanks, Stu. Make sure you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow at Dramfine Podcast on Instagram. Any whiskey or topic suggestions, reach out. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time. Bye. We recently got to try the delicious whiskey cookies made by Beth Havers of Aunt Beth Bakes. Wow, the Ardbeg Smoke Show cookies were super yummy and still retained that peaty smoke flavour. So good. Check out her full selection of whiskey infused treats at AuntBethBakes.com. 